Well, good morning. Luke chapter 13 this morning. Luke chapter 13. So we took a two-month break from the book of Luke, and some of you may not even realize that, but we did. We took a two-month break from the book of Luke, and I think it's important and healthy to, to even explain some things to us as we jump back into Luke. And maybe you're wondering, why such a long series through Luke? Why are we going from beginning to end in the book of Luke? Why, why, why would we do that? Well, for several reasons. One, we believe that all of God's Word is profitable. And when you, when you pick a book of the Bible and you preach through it, it's the best way to do it, not just because it's the way we do it, but we believe that this is the best way to do it for several reasons. One being, you, can, you get an understanding of the whole book in its context. You understand who it was written to. You understand why it was written. And, and that helps us to understand here now, some 2,000 years later, why that matters to us. And I'm here to tell you this morning, what is said in the book of Luke really matters to us today. And, and, and what we're going to see in this text this morning really matters to every one of us in this room this morning. Now, there's a lot of books you can pick up and you can read and enjoy them, and, but you may read them and you may enjoy them, you may, under, you may like the, the story it's telling, you may like the facts they're, they're teaching, but I can't promise you that that book was written for you and for your understanding and for your benefit. I can promise you, though, that when you pick up the Bible, it was written for you, it was written for you to understand, and it was written for your benefit. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in a book of the Bible that's for us and for our benefit. I want to remind us that Luke was written probably to a Roman dignitary. And, and, and this guy probably, we believe, had come to faith in Christ. Now, think about that. If you know anything about world history and you know anything about Roman times, a, a man who's a, in a government official or a Roman dignitary, for him to come to Christ is a pretty big deal, right? That's a pretty big deal for him to come to Christ. And most likely, it, it, it put him in some serious conflicts with, with the people around him and, and just conflicts in his own mind. And so Luke is writing to this guy who, he's kind of given him a pseudonym, I believe, Theophilus. And, and what he's done here as he's written to him is he is giving to him a history of the church because this is only volume one. Luke is volume one, the book of Acts is volume two of this letter that Luke writes to Theophilus. And as he's writing to him, he's giving to him a history of the church and you cannot give an accurate history of the church without starting at its founder, Jesus Christ. And so what Luke is doing here in the book of Luke is pointing this man to Christ. He's explained to him who Jesus is, what he did, why he had to come, all these important things. Now, we could spend time on Sunday mornings gathering together studying important world figures. We could study the, the greats throughout all of time, but there is no greater study than knowing Jesus and knowing who he is and why he came and what that means to you and I today. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Christ and we're going to be actually hearing his words in Luke chapter 13. But I want to help us to understand where we are because when we last left this at the end of June, we finished up with chapter 12. And at chapter 12, just go back with me a page maybe in your Bible to chapter 12. 
And at chapter 12, verse 1, we, we have this, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, and he begins preaching to them. Okay? There's this large crowd. I mean, they're, they're pressing in on one another. They're, they're there to hear Jesus. Jesus is still a popular figure. He's going to become less and less popular with the religious leaders, but he's very popular with, the, with just the general population there in Israel, and they want to hear what he has to say, and, and honestly, they're coming because they want to see what he's going to do, too. So, so they're looking for two things here. He says some things that really put the religious leaders on edge. He says some things that, that kind of get them riled up, and the general population, quite honestly, they like that. And so they're waiting to hear more of that. They're, they're hoping that he might perform a miracle or two. They're there listening. And what happens is Jesus preaches this very hard-hitting message. You ever heard a hard-hitting message before? The kind that just leaves your heart just like pummeled and black and blue. And you're like, man, I'm exhausted after hearing that. This is the kind of message that Jesus is preaching here. He, he says in verses 4 and 5, he's like, hey, don't be afraid of those who can just kill the body. Fear the one who has the authority over your body and can put your soul in hell. That's kind of hard hitting, isn't it? He says, stop worrying about, about, you know, about people who can harm you just physically. You ought to be really worried about the person who can condemn your soul to hell. And I would say that's good ammunition for all of us in this room this morning, is it not? Then he continues on in the message and, and he, he goes on further and he says this, if you deny me, Jesus, he says this to the crowd, you deny me here on this earth, guess what? I will deny you in heaven. That's hard hitting. That's not feel good, is it? He continues on. Don't worry about what's going to happen to your life. Don't worry about who's going to provide for you. Just put your confidence in me and my provision. And then he says at the end of this chapter, Live your life in such a way that you're ready for Christ's return. Now, in this message, in verse 13 of chapter 12, we, we had record of someone kind of just in the crowd interjecting somebody and asking Jesus a question. And that kind of sets the foundation for chapter 13. So we come to chapter 13. Jesus is getting to the end of this message. And, and as I mentioned before, this is a hard-hitting, he has rocked them with some, with some big left hooks and some right jabs, and he's about to land, he's about to land the, the, the final big punch here. And what sets it all up is he gets this report. He gets this question from, from the people. And it, and it sets up Jesus for this great finale in this message. And so our focus this morning is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. And so as we're thinking about this, I want us to just think about some words before we look at these words. And I want you to think back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, where it says that Jesus came to reveal the Father. And it said that when he came to reveal the Father, he's God in the flesh, and that he was full of two things. Do you remember what the, what the word says he's full of? He's full of grace, and he's full of truth, right? He's full of grace and truth. Well, this message so far has been full of a lot of truth, and it has been that hard-hitting, in-your-face, confrontational truth. And we might be tempted to say, where's the grace in this? Well, even in verses 1 through 9, when I read them, we're going to have to really work hard to find grace, but I submit to you it's there. 
Jesus is going to finish this message up with, with truth, big truth, but there's grace in this truth. And, and, and that's going to help us as we, as we frame our thoughts now. So let's look. I'm going to read Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Um, I don't often say this, but, but I'm going to say this this morning. The next few words that you hear are the most important words you're going to hear this morning because these are the words of very God to us. Okay? I'm going to say some words after these words, but, but what I read here in verses 1 through 9, these are the inspired words of God that, that He has protected through the ages so that you and I could have them today. He's speaking to us right now through His Word. Isn't that an awesome thought? So let's hear the words of our God this morning. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told Him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should not bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Did you see the grace there? <laughs> We've got to look hard, but we're going to see it. Let's talk to the one who gave this passage to us before we begin. Father, this passage answers some really difficult questions, questions that I think most of us in this room has, have wrestled with, the question of why bad things happen to people. This text answers that question. And so, Father, I pray that, that not only would we get the answer to that question, but that, that you would open our eyes to see the truth and grace of what genuine repentance truly is. Lord, I pray that we would, would leave here, one, knowing that we have truly repented and that we are, we are the servants of Christ, or that, two, that we need desperately to repent so that we're not cut down. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So give you a simple outline this morning. Two points. Can you remember two points? Hopefully you can. Point number one is the necessity of repentance, and point number two is the evidence of repentance, okay? This whole text hinges on the word repentance, the necessity of repentance. And so as Jesus is coming to the end of this message that he's begun preaching in chapter 12, he gets this report in verse 1 that where some people report to him and they, they basically ask him this question, what about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices? Now, now we read that and, and we have no gospel record of that anywhere in our Bible and we're like, what, what is this? This is like a little, little blurb of news right here in chapter 13, verse 1. And we have to understand what's going on here. And so, with a little bit of intuition and a little bit of smarts, we can figure out what's happening here. We have a group of Galileans who have come to Jerusalem, and we find that we know they're in Jerusalem because they're sacrificing. Where is the only place for, for an Israelite to sacrifice? 
Jerusalem at the temple, right? But normally, who does the sacrificing? You can answer me, church. Come on. Who does the sacrificing? The priests do. There was one time during the year, though, when priests had to be assisted by the common man because there were so many sacrifices going on. Anybody want to take a guess as to when that was? Passover. Passover. So we can surmise from this that, that what's being referenced here is, is a time at Passover, okay? And so what we can also know is this, that Jesus is in the final year of his ministry because Jesus himself is going to go and offer himself up at the time of Passover. So he's within the final year of his ministry here, okay? And he gets this report that, that there are some Galileans who are there. They're obviously assisting the priests in, in slaughtering their own animals for sacrifice there. And, and what we find out is that Pilate mingles their blood with the sacrifices. Literally what's happening here is, and, and of course the Bible is not just clean G-rated, okay? These guys are offering their sacrifices and they're ambushed by Roman soldiers, as they're cutting their own sacrifices, and their blood is all over with their sacrifices. Now, to a Jew, we got a real problem here. Because we have tainted the sacrifice, right? We've tainted the blood. And so, and so the question comes, and Jesus, he intuitively, he understands what's being asked here. He's not being asked to comment on the fact that Galileans got slayed here. What he's being asked to comment on is why, why, or what's going on here, or what, how horrible were these Galileans that they had to be killed this way? Because Jesus' answer in verse 2 is this, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? That's the question he throws back at them. Now, I don't know about you, but there's some pretty evil people in this world, Right? And we would like to think that they're going to suffer really harsh judgment, wouldn't we? Like, like if I mentioned Adolf Hitler, how many of you think there's a hotter spot in hell for Adolf Hitler today? Okay, right? What about abortion doctors? Yeah. And, and we can tend to think that way. And that, what that does is, if we're not careful, it takes us, and what does it do with us? Right? And what Jesus here is doing is he's throwing this back. These guys may have been political revolutionaries. We don't know. Maybe that's why Pilate had them killed. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe Pilate saw them as a threat, and so he had his soldiers kill them. It was well believed and well taught during this time that, that people who were victims of calamities and misfortune were guilty of extraordinary deep, dark sins. It's not much different than the way you and I think today. When we say things like, well, that person had that coming to them. And so they're seeking Jesus' opinion on this. And Jesus says this to them. This had nothing to do with the manner of death. What happened here had nothing to do. The real concern is that unless there is repentance, you who are asking me this, will perish. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't really even deal with the Galilean issue very much? He, he, said, he mentions them. He says, these Galileans are worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. And he's about to give them the response, and they're like, yes, give us the answer. And he says, verse 3, here's the answer. No. Unless you repent, you will all perish. Unless you repent, you will perish. 
That word repent is the key word in this text, and we have to understand what that word means. Because I think there's a misunderstanding even in churches today as to what repentance is. And if we don't understand what this word is, and, and there may be some people in this room today who have think you have repented and you haven't even come close to sniffing what repentance is. And so I'm not saying this to a shock value. I want you to know and understand what it means to repent. The word literally means to think differently about something. It means to think differently about something, to change the way that you think, specifically in regard to your sin. So, so literally, what Jesus is saying is, unless you, unless me, unless people sitting out here in this room today, unless we start to think differently about sin, we're going to perish. Now, let's think about the way that we think about sin. We love sin, don't we? Before Christ, we love sin, right? We reveled in it. We, we, we happily played in the cesspool of sin. And, and, and we would go along our merry way, right on a, on a first class ticket all the way to hell, just pursuing sin because we all enjoy sinning. Am I right or am I right? And then at some point, for some of us in this room, we were confronted about our sin, were we not? We were confronted about our sin, and we understood this, that our sin, every evil thought, every evil word that I say, every evil action that I do, and the, and the fact that I enjoy it so much, we were confronted about that, and we realized that our sin wasn't just a bad thing, it was an offense to a holy God. It was an offense to a holy God, an all-powerful God, who one day will judge that sin. Notice what repentance isn't. Repentance isn't a simple acknowledgement of sin. I could get every one of us in this room to acknowledge the fact that we sin. In fact, I'll do it right now. How many of you sin? That doesn't mean you've repented. The fact that you acknowledge sin doesn't mean that you've repented. You, you, you can acknowledge that you sin and not have a change of mind about it. It's not just a cavalier, my bad, either. And I fear that, that, that the way that, that the gospel is being presented today in our nation and around the world is, is that if you just come to Jesus and own up to the fact that you're broken, he'll heal you. If you own up to the fact that you sin, and it's like, my bad, God, and then God's going to miraculously rescue you. Folks, that is a lie that will damn your soul to hell. That is not Repentance. Repentance involves a brokenness over sin and an actual turning from it. It involves a brokenness over sin and an actual turning from sin. Unless a person truly repents of their sin and their rebellion against God and receives by faith salvation freely given and the righteousness of Christ put to their accounts, one will die and forever be separated from God in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Scripture. We use terms like accepting Jesus. I hate that term. I'm just going to be honest with you. I hate that term. We don't accept Jesus. Jesus comes and rescues us. 
Jesus comes and pulls us out of the mire. Jesus comes and because we're all dead men. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians 2. We're all dead in our trespasses and sin. We have no way to accept when we're dead. He has to regenerate us and make us alive. And let's understand here, that begins with repentance. It begins with an acknowledgement that I am in direct rebellion to God. And so, yeah, it's just a little six-letter word in our English language, but it has big meaning, does it not? It has big meaning. But Jesus doesn't stop there with the necessity of repentance. He continues on in verse 4. He says this, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? The tower of Siloam most likely was, was at a corner of the wall there around Jerusalem. And it's near the pool of Siloam where Jesus healed a man there, the paralytic. It's there, and it's believed that the Romans, during Pilate's time, were trying to build this tower to get the water up into it, and they were building an aqueduct to, to transport water around. So during construction, because construction workers, let's face it, I grew up in a construction worker's house, we do things sometimes that are a little unsafe, right? Oh, yeah, we can build this tower a little bit higher without bracing it, right? 18 people died because the tower fell on them. Do you realize that this verse of Scripture right here was the most preached verse of Scripture the Sunday after 9-11? Do you know that? It was. It's interesting, isn't it? Here we are one week before it. And what Jesus is saying here is, these people weren't political revolutionaries. They were just literally commuting through the, through the city of Jerusalem, and they just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know what Jesus is saying? Because we live in a broken, sin-cursed world, bad things are going to happen to normal people. They are. And, and, and that's not the point of this, but, but it helps us to answer a question. People die from drunk drivers. They didn't go out and intend that day, you know what, I'm going to find a drunk driver and have them hit me. Bad things, calamitous things happen to good people, don't they? And here's the answer. Look at verse 5. Guess what? It doesn't matter if you deserve to die because you're a political revolutionary like a Galilean or if you're just walking through town and a wall falls on you. Unless you repent, you're going to die. Jesus is making a serious point here that we better get. He repeats it a second time. He says, these people weren't worse offenders than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem. They just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. But here's the real issue. If you haven't turned from your sin to embrace Christ, if you haven't said no to the slave master of sin to become the slave of Christ, guess what? You're going to die. You're going to perish. You're going to be separated from God for eternity. There has to be heart change. We have to go from this enjoying, excusing, pursuing of sin and see it as an offense to God. And, and for some of us, we're, 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 we're making that deal in our minds with God right now. I'll do that later. But right now I'm going to enjoy what I have. And what Jesus is pointing out to us is, you never know when a wall's going to fall on you. Do you know? But he doesn't stop there. 
He points out the need for repentance, and he does it in a quite compelling way. But he points out to us then with a parable the evidence of repentance, and he illustrates it with a parable. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Luke, and so I want to review real quick what a parable is. A parable is a story from an everyday event that's, or, or situation or illustration that's out there in the world, and it's used to, by Jesus to bring spiritual truth. But remember, when Jesus uses parables, he does it for two reasons. One, to confuse those that he wants to be confused and to bring light to those who he wants to bring light. Okay, That's why he told us he uses parables. So, so he's going to use one that they would have readily identified with, okay? So a man has a vineyard. What do you expect to find in a vineyard, people? Grapes. Now the big thing in, you know, is vineyards. There's just cool places to go and hang out, and, and, and all the girls want to go there, and they post their pictures on their Instagrams. We're at the vineyard. Vineyards. We're important during this time because if we didn't grow grapes, we had nothing to drink, okay? They were also some of the best land that was available for growing. So it's not uncommon that someone who wanted to have figs would take a part of his already prepared vineyard and he would plant a fig tree there. When you plant a fig tree, what are you hoping to get, church? Figs, right? You can have all of them. I don't even like them in Fig Newtons, okay? You can have them. But, but if you plant a fig tree, you're hoping to get figs, right? Now, fig trees are interesting trees. I didn't know this until this week. They grow at about 25 feet tall, and you can't readily tell whether a fig tree is bearing fruit or not because it's so leafy and the leaves hang down. You actually have to go to that fig tree, and you have to inspect to see if there's figs on it. You can't just like be walking by, like, you know, this time of year, you're driving down 161 or whatever, and you see an apple tree out near a field. You can see the apples, right? You, can tell, you can't do that with a fig tree. You have to go up and you have to inspect. So he's got the best conditions for growing. He's got this fig tree planted, and the owner of, of this vineyard comes one day, goes to the fig tree, inspects And he's like, third year in a row, man. No figs. And I got this tree taking up valuable resources here. And he says to the guy who's who's taking care of the vineyard for him, hey, go, chop it, gone, done, done. We don't need this anymore. What's the emphasis on here in this parable? What determines whether this this tree is going to stand or not stand? It's what? It's fruit. It's fruitfulness. It's fruitfulness. And and don't miss this. this. This ties back directly to the word repentance. There is such a thing as unfruitful repentance, and there is such a thing as fruitful repentance, and they're not the same. And just because someone has said they're repentant doesn't mean that they have eternal life. Notice what happens to this unfruitful tree, or what's going to happen to the unfruitful tree. What's going to happen to the unfruitful tree? Cut down. Cut down. It's it's worthless. It's taking up valuable land. It's using valuable resources, and, and, and it's not accomplishing anything good here. Now notice verse 8. The vine dresser intercedes for the tree. Do you see it there? 
The vine dresser intercedes for the tree. If you're looking for grace in this passage, here it is in verse 8. Here it is. For three years, the owner has been coming and looking for fruit, right? Could he have rightfully cut that down after the first year? Could he have cut it down after the second year? Could he have cut it down after the third year? Could have. And now we got the vine dresser saying, sir, sir, let it this year also, let it alone until I dig around it and put on manure, until I fertilize it. Let's give it one more shot. Do you see the grace of God in this? Do you see the grace of God in this? Here, here, what I, have, what I see this is, the one who owns this is God himself, and, and the vine dresser is Jesus saying, guess what, give me some more opportunity with him. Give me some more opportunity with him. Let it alone. Let's put on manure. Let's see what happens with it. Now, the primary, the primary application of this is who is Jesus' audience in this message? It's, it's Israel, is it not? It's the nation of Israel. And, and the primary application of this is this. Here is God saying, I'm done. I'm done with Israel. And yet, Christ intercedes. Let's give it some more time. Let's give it some more time. But, but here's Christ who has been publicly preaching to Israel and they have rejected him over and over and over again. And really at that point, he could have just walked away and been righteous in doing so and saying, let's cut them down. They're not worth anything. But yet he gives them another year of ministry, basically. Another year of opportunity. But there's individual application here as well. It applies to us personally. And let me help you to see the application in this. This is probably the most important application point. True repentance bears fruit. True repentance bears fruit. It will produce fruit. The one who is truly the child of God will be a fruitful person. This debunks, as I said before, the popular notion of just praying a prayer and accepting Jesus as your Savior and, and going forward in a church service and then never darkening the doors of a church for another 20 years. That is not fruitful repentance. And don't think that you are fruitfully repentant just because you show up every week. There's more to it. You see, salvation is not buying insurance to protect you against coming judgment. God is not an insurance salesman. He's a loving heavenly father who rescues souls and brings them to himself as his children, and we become the servants of Jesus. That, that's not my words. That's the Bible's words. We once served sin. Now we serve Christ. When you serve, you have to be fruitful, do you not? You have to produce. And so what, what the word is telling us here is this, is that... A change of heart, a change of mind about sin will always lead to a production of fruit within a heart that's been transformed. If there's no fruit in your life and you are, and you are basing the fact that you're going to be in heaven on a prayer that you prayed or this one time when, when, you, when you were in your room and you read your Bible and God, God kind of got a hold of you and you had some emotional moment, but there's no fruit, I would implore you, I would beg you, Truly repent of your sin and come to Christ. Truly repent of your sin. 
Don't put your hopes on eternity on some little thing that you have done because true believers don't need to point to a date on a calendar for salvation. They can demonstrate it daily by their obedience to Christ. Let me say that again. I don't need to point to a date on a calendar when I got saved. I can demonstrate the fact that I am changed by my daily obedience to Christ. You say, are you preaching work salvation here, PD? No. No, I'm not. I can't earn my salvation. Christ accomplished it all for me. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But because I am changed, I should be able to produce, and I better be producing fruit. That is true for all of us as believers. But if you're, if you're hoping to show up at the gates of heaven with a day timer, with a calendar, with a date circle on it, this is the day I prayed a prayer, don't expect entrance into heaven. It's a changed heart. It's a heart that's been changed by God's Holy Spirit, a heart that's fruitful, a heart that's producing. This parable screams against easy believism. It screams against it. And I don't think I've screamed it loud enough. I'm not a screamer. But, but this parable absolutely debunks the idea that you pray a prayer, go happily on your way. You don't have to worry about producing fruit. No, here's the vine dresser saying, no, I'm interceding for it, but the master of the, of the vineyard says, cut it down. Cut it down. There's a second application I want you to see in this before we leave this morning. If you are here and you truly are unrepentant, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Do you see it? The, the master was ready to cut it down that year when he came, wasn't he? And, and even the one who intercedes, the vine dresser says, just give me one more year. What's implied there? Judgment is going to come. Back up to this. The Galileans did not know in 13.1 that it was their day to go. They were going to offer their ritual sacrifices there on Passover. They were doing probably the most holy thing in their minds that they could be doing that day. They didn't think that was the day they were going to die. The people walking by the Tower of Siloam, they didn't think that was their day to die. But guess what? We are all going to die and then we face the judgment. Three years, this owner has come looking for fruit. That's grace. And let's understand this. All of us, myself at the top of the list, in our rebellious, sinful state, before Christ has, has rescued us, we all deserve to be chopped down. If you're here this morning and you're unrepentant, don't think that I'm in a position of lordship over you. Guess what? I deserve to be chopped down just as much as you deserve to be chopped down. We all deserve to be chopped down. The only reason I'm not going to be chopped down is because I've been rescued by Christ. And here's the thing. No one can be guaranteed how long, is going to, how long God is going to be patient with us. We can't guarantee it. Here's the grim reality. You can't guarantee you're going to make it home today. Can you? You can't guarantee it. There will come a point when God's patience will be exhausted and he will cut down on fruitful trees. And so as we conclude, 
my main appeal this morning, if you haven't gotten it, is, is to those in this room who are trusting in a profession or you're trusting in some event and your life doesn't back up what you've professed. Jesus in John chapter 10 put it this way. My sheep, the ones who truly follow me, they know me and I know them. How do I know that they know me? Because they follow me. Later on, John would write this. And in fact, I want you to turn with me as we end to 1 John chapter 2. To 1 John chapter 2. How do you know if you know Jesus or not? And that's really a hard question, you know? How do I know if I really know Jesus? Well, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle John writes it this way. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we what? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Do you you understand what John's saying there to us? We don't obey to earn our salvation. We obey because our lives and our hearts have been changed so that we can produce fruit. But it is a genuine mark, and it has to be there every time. If you are truly the child of God, you're an obedient child of God. Not perfect, but obedient. And so I beg of you, this morning. Evaluate your fruit. Evaluate your fruit. Has your repentance produced the fruit of righteousness? Has it produced the fruit of obedience? If it's not, then it's not good repentance. It's a false repentance. It's not going to pay off in the end. And how tragic would that be? In a moment, the worship team's going to come and lead us one more time in song. And I'm just going to hang out here in the room this morning. I know. You just love to greet me in the hallway. Everybody wants to say hi to me. Makes your week better. I'm going to hang out in here. Because maybe you realize this morning you haven't truly repented. I would love nothing more than to sit down with the Word of God and show you how you can know Christ is your Savior today. How you can truly repent and have a change of heart. Father, we thank you for your word. And yeah, this is a hard-hitting truth. But I pray that we all would, would not be looking at our neighbor's heart and their fruit, but that we would all be searching our own hearts this morning for, for fruits of repentance. And where there is fruits of repentance, we praise you because it's only through your work that you've made that possible. But Lord, where there is not fruit of repentance, I pray that today would be the day of repentance for for anyone in this room who does not know that Christ truly is their Lord and Savior. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.